Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that early childhood nerd podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. Uh, I'm Heather Burnt Santi, and he is Mike Huber. Hi, Mike. Hello. <laughs> How are you? Good. Good. <laughs> it's that a lazy day. Because I asked, but I thought maybe the maybe the audience wants to know how Mike's doing. That's true. They might they might not though. Who knows? Because <laughs> by the time they hear this, I won't actually. Or, That's true. There's no I could guarantee. be feeling anyway. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what a what a great way to start the podcast, Heather. Um, so Mike and I are gonna. We don't have a quote, which doesn't happen very often, but uh, I guess it has been known to happen. But um, just in light of uh, the last few podcasts. Uh, episodes of this podcast that we had Dr. Erica Bachnick, who is a family therapist and child development specialist. And then um, who else? Kelsey Olds and Greg Santucci, who are both occupational therapists. Mm-hmm. And um, Mike's been texting me about this great speech language pathologist that he uh, knows. So so we've just been thinking about what kinds and of And she'll things- be on someday. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's on the list. She doesn't know it yet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but she kind of knows it. Going, okay. <laughs> um, well, thanks, Mike, for being my booking agent yeah. for that. Anyway, we just have been thinking about how much we've learned from people outside of early childhood education, but that really impact uh, and and make sense with the work that we do with young children. Yeah. And I would even say that when you're in the classroom, Cause there's the thing with teaching, like once you shut the door, it's just you and your co-teacher or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and you can kind of do whatever you want in some ways. And then when somebody else comes in, you pretend to do it the way they ask you to or something. And hopefully you're a reflective teacher and anything you see could influence what you do. Right. Um, and it can really, I don't know, it can make the teaching more exciting. It can help give you insight with kids that, puzzle you um I don't know I have a few different ideas in my head yeah well I guess just for a starter for me it had me thinking about um when I was a classroom teacher um in you know toddler or three uh three to five year old classrooms programs whatever you want to call it um and we would have therapists come in um often they would pull the child out so I couldn't really see what was happening and I didn't really have access even to what the goals were for the child those kinds of things um or uh I've I've had I had one speech language pathologist no she was just a developmental therapist coming in to do speech therapy with a with a two-year-old and uh was like correcting our our work (laughs) so it was it was, it's been so nice over the last, uh, for me, five years to have different, and, and I'll say part of that was, you know, I, maybe I wasn't the most welcoming teacher and I wasn't asking her, you know, whatever, but the, the experiences previously, um, have not been connected, I guess that we're not, yeah. we're not interacting with each other. We're not sharing and learning from each other, um, sure. with each other. Um, but, but then I went to work at the, the preschool language program at Purdue and was working every day with not just a speech language, language pathologist, but, um, you know, eight 
speech language pathology right, right. students. So it it completely changed, uh, started to change for me. And then I started to do research about sensory processing. Um, and mm-hmm. that mostly led me to occupational therapy. I was really right. surprised that there wasn't more in like traditionally early childhood literature and stuff. Yeah, that still amazes about me. That. Yeah. When there's so many like workshops on challenging behaviors. Mm-hmm. I used quotes for the people just listening to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, and every time I present, every time you present, someone's going to bring it up at right. some point. Um, you know, it's constantly a thing. And yet, almost always, it comes down to mental health and sensory profile. Mm-hmm you know, 90% of the time. And yet it's not considered standard practice to teach about that. Yeah. And, you know, you and I have been reviewing textbooks lately and uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's just not in the curriculum of learning to be a teacher. And it seems right. crazy because in the classroom, you're going to deal with actual human beings who actually experience the world through their senses right. and to not understand how that happens differently for each child and you know and then you just have to have a classroom you know the whole herding cats thing mm-hmm. um where it's like yep you're on your own you can figure out how to deal with these kids yeah is just crazy to me yeah me too and um we i you know it just what it comes down to for to me is i i'm i use it a lot early childhood education it's it's in my job title <laughs> in my real job um but more and more i'm just getting really frustrated with that focus on just the education piece and not on the child. And I feel like that's where I really appreciate hearing uh, Dr. Erica and Kelsey and and Greg come in um, talking about the child and the child's body and physical being and how how that can impact what, um, what we expect and how we help. Yeah. It's interesting for me. So when I think about the first time I started thinking about this, I had a child that, um, I guess I actually don't know what diagnosis the child got specifically. Mm -hmm. I have some guesses, but Mm -hmm. there was another parent who was an occupational therapist, but just was one of the parents dropping off her kid, but would see this child. And I think she kind of came to me at one point of like, yeah, you know, um, if you ever wanted to hire me to do, you know, a training for the teachers here about, you know, uh, sensory integration, Mm -hmm. I think was the term she would have used back then. Maybe sensory processing, but um, I was sort of like, didn't even know why she was saying that, but um, oh, sure. You know, of course she's walking out the door every day of like, oh, that child needs some, (laughs) you know, that child's getting overstimulated or that child needs, you know, a different sensory thing to calm down a little bit. Or Mm -hmm. she she figures it out or, you know, has inklings, mm-hmm. right. Just from the little bit she sees, but, um, she couldn't say that to me. Uh, and so it was just really interesting that when she did the workshop, it was like, Oh, so then we suddenly had like all these sensory things in the room, you know, mm-hmm. different headphones for when it got too loud or, you know, soft things to help calm down and, um, I, I was always pretty good about getting the sensory stuff that stimulates kids, right? Right. That, that kids could get amped up. Yeah. Um, which kids need to do, right? Like, yeah. you know, that whole idea of regulation is kids being in the right 
having the right energy level for what is happening. Um, right. um, I think and we've talked about it. Yeah. That's, so. that's such a good example of, I mean, it, so one other thing I wanted to say is that it's also clear as I learn more and read more and listen more that even within those fields, like occupational therapy, speech language, whatever, there are people who hold on to old practice and there are people mm -hmm. who are, you know, uh, moving forward with what we, what we learn as we, you know, what, what the new information is and, yes. and, and rethinking. So that's important to say that we're not saying every early childhood person is bad and every, oh yeah, every yeah, therapist for sure. is, is great, but it's, but it has, it is an interesting way to learn, um, to, to just be challenged. And the idea of regulation, like, uh, I think it was Kelsey Olds on her occupational therapist Facebook page, maybe just in the last few days, posted that infographic about what regulation is and yeah. isn't. Yeah, that, I, I was don't remember to that. the language, but um, it caught me because that's definitely how, you know, one is like, regulate, regulated doesn't mean calm, right? It means right. that their energy level matches what the situation they're in or, or what they're being asked yeah to do or something like that and and but it doesn't mean calm right and i definitely had slipped into that mm -hmm. um using regulation as a euphemism for right behavior and so it was right. such a good reminder yeah yeah to be like oh you're definitely slipping back into an old habit there, just using a new word yeah for sure and and of course regulation in occupational therapy it is lingo to mean a specific thing yeah in the occupational therapy framework that is similar to the way we'll use it in everyday life but it's not exactly the same and i couldn't explain exactly why but mm -hmm. sometimes you know like that word dysregulated yeah. um, then really means when you're not um in sync with what you're supposed to be you know where you're supposed to be at mm -hmm. but I usually use it to mean, you know, in that tantrum, that fight, flight, or freeze mode. Um, yeah, because that's usually the part that doesn't work in the classroom. Yeah. But I had the same thing with um, when I worked on my first book, uh, Embracing Rough and Tumble Play. I had one of the people I brought in was a yoga teacher. Um, and I was thinking about mindfulness, mm -hmm. right? Because I thought, well, it's important to think about mindfulness. And in my head at the time, I was thinking, I'm doing a lot about how to get the kids like uh, high arousal would be the mm -hmm. phrase, like high energy, whatever you want to call it. But I also want to talk about how to calm down. And that in my head was what we were going to talk about. And the occupational or the yoga instructors sort of said, well, you know, mindfulness means noticing where your body's at. Mm. So rough and tumble play is a great form of mindfulness. Yeah. And I was like, oh, right. Because we oh, yeah. so often mean, oh, how to calm the children down, like mindfulness, because in adults, we often don't notice when our emotions are making our heart race, our breath short, all those types of things. And so we need to kind of pause and notice that. Mm -hmm. But for kids, they tend to notice those things, you mm -hmm. know, like a lot, they're a lot more in tune with going up and down adults kind of think that they're in this even keel thing but their heart rate and you know whatever blood pressure and all that are actually going up and down too yeah. they just aren't crying the moment it happens or throwing <laughs> things 
And so mindfulness for adults often means really slowing down and noticing what your body's doing and where are you tense. Mm -hmm. And children are actually much more aware of that. And so mindfulness is simply your mind noticing where your body is and your body's needs. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was interesting for me. And that's another example, I suppose, of bringing in a yoga instructor to talk about things. Yeah. Um, And then she brought up all these things that I think help with teaching because she was like, oh, when I'm doing a yoga class, I know that I can't actually start anything for five minutes. I have the music on, but I won't even pretend to put us in that meditative state for at least five minutes. And then I know it's going to take five more minutes to get there. Oh, because grownups are first going to say, oh, hey, how how was your week? Oh, blah, 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 blah. And she's like, I'm not going to interrupt that. Because that actually goes against what they need right now. Right now, they need to emotionally connect or socially connect Mm -hmm. with the others in the class and put their stuff down, whatever. And they get into the, when they're on their mat, you can start to see them starting to listen to the music, starting to breathe to the rhythm of the music. And then I can start talking. And, but then I still know that someone is still whispering to someone else (laughs) for a few more minutes. And Mm -hmm. I don't want to bring it up because that interrupts the thing. And I was just like, oh, and how many of us are just like, oh my God, 10 seconds ago, I said, it's time to clean up. Right, and exactly. are still playing. You know, I'm thinking yeah. if I, if grownups take 10 minutes to do it, um, why would I expect kids to do it yeah. any quicker? So any, anything that brings that up is, is good. Great <laughs> yeah, for right. me to hear, you know, because that's such a tendency. We could make so many excuses and give so many rationales for our, us as adults right. that we don't accept um, right. with children. But I think part of that is because we get into our scripts mm-hmm. as early childhood people. And that's another, you know, that's for me, maybe one of the most um, important ways that listening to reading about learning from people outside the field um, yeah. uh, is helpful to me. Like, I, th- I think even something as simple, you know, we had uh, Dr. Erica Bachneck on um, and the, a few weeks ago, and that was because I heard her at a conference um, speaking and uh, somebody, they were talking about specifically behavior. It was a, the topic was supposed to be mental health, but of course oh, yeah. that always goes to behavior. And um, uh, someone said, you know, well, I just always wonder if something's going on at home. That's a very early childhood script yeah to say right and dr erica said no it's happening right now in front of you it's not yes. something happening yes. at home and everybody was like oh like that was so mind-blowing right. but it's just because it went against the the script that we're used to right uh, yeah and it's one of those things that yeah it doesn't make any sense to not deal with the child in front of you because mm-hmm. you have no control over what happens at home yeah. but you have lots of control over what happens in yeah. front of you and that was the one I had to look to remember. She talked about, she used the phrase belongingness. Yes. And I thought that was great to, because we don't think enough about that. Well, does the child feel like they belong? Because the child who keeps getting told that they're being too loud or that they, they're playing the wrong way, thinking of, you know, gunplay or whatever, like yeah. they don't feel like they belong. They have to change who they are so that the teacher, oh, I like how you're doing this. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you don't like when I do the thing that I feel like I need to be doing, but you like me when I do this thing. So I don't really belong or my true self. I only belong belong if I change. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. 
I am totally willing to accept you as long as you exactly. change yourself yeah. to be like uh, me. Yeah. But I thought, yeah, her conversation was great. And it's that thing of, um, yeah, just the, it's like, it's your job to work with the kids in front of you. I, oh, I know. I was going to, I was thinking about the school readiness thing where mm -hmm. parents will show me things that kindergartens will send where it's like, oh, they're supposed to do this. It's like, oh, that's interesting. Cause that's, the state kindergarten standard for the end of the end of the year. Yeah. <laughs> but they want you as the parent to make sure the kid can do it now because, you know, it's like, I thought yeah. my understanding was that would be a teacher's job to help the child. Maybe. And that this is of course, like if I actually believed that standards were yes. like the be all end all, but even if they're guideposts, I'm like, yeah, this is what we'd expect most kids to be able to do. And if some don't, that's okay, because mm -hmm. everyone develops differently. But we also want to have some idea. That I, I'm fine with. The word standard doesn't cover that. But still, why would you tell parents they should be doing this before they come? Because the state says that they have to do it by the time they leave. So, mm -hmm. like, it, it's just such a weird thing. And then, meanwhile, it just causes all this anxiety. It's like, right. it just seems like, what if you dealt, you know, school readiness could be the school being ready for the kids mm -hmm. not and, the parents and, yeah and everyone coming everyone who's going to be part of that child's experience being ready um, yes yeah yeah, yeah. yeah by yeah. school i meant yeah, yeah right the, both the uh, adults sort of, and the building and whatever everything yeah. yeah boy that's a whole other yeah topic. sorry i didn't i didn't uh, want to go there i don't know how i got there uh, been you know i just, I just wrote a little bit about that and then there was another Somebody posted about readiness that we also were sharing around uh, uh, yes. the last couple of days. Anyway, um, I'll play America for that one, even though I haven't met her yet. But yeah, <laughs> I um, yeah. she's delightful. <laughs> um, so uh, and and very at least very tolerant of weirdness because after she spoke at the conference thing I was at, I went up to her afterwards and I said. Um, uh, which and this is from Pride and Prejudice. Some people will know. It's like you must allow me to uh, confess how much I ardently admire and love her. <laughs> She's just like, oh, that's so sweet. Probably um, better than saying I almost shit my pants. But right, yeah. right. I'm growing. Yeah, there growth. you go. Yeah. Um. Uh, uh. In some ways, I'm growing. Anyway. Um. So I was just trying to think specifically what other kinds of things, like I think about um, how much I've learned um, about autism mm -hmm. from people outside of early childhood. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, especially, you know, we just did the the episode with Greg. Uh, I just did the episode with Greg about ABA. And that was like something I sort of reflexively instinctively was not comfortable doing and when mm -hmm. I was asked even you know the, the most I was asked to do you know for a child's goal or whatever was eye contact right and um I remember one day being down on this little boy's level you know a four-year-old and his goal was that he would make eye contact so I was like really trying to hold right, him right. in and he was like using every resource to get out of that gaze like he was right. rolling his eyes up in his head and turning his head and squirming and i finally just thought this is i'm hurting him <laughs> like I'm, right right i was just I'm thinking you could have a pin that you keep like trying to poke him and he keeps right? moving away like yeah what is wrong with this kid i can't <laughs> oh and and i was and... like oh maybe this is wrong and then um i think that's right around the time that i discovered greg santucci stuff yeah 
oh okay it's not just me being resistant or weird or right you know this this really is something we need to take seriously and I think for me because my you know kiddo is autistic and very articulate so they're an adult for those of you yeah. who haven't listened to other episodes of me <laughs> um, weren't tracking Mike's life yeah on a little chart on the wall exactly um <laughs> no but they they're very articulate about oh yeah of course I can make eye contact Mm-hmm. But it it's really stressful. Mm-hmm. So I have to decide how much stress do I want? Or when I'm being and when I'm stressed out about other things, I'm less there's less spoons is the uh, phrase that's mm-hmm. usually used. I think it comes from um oh what's I can't remember her first name. Lawson's the second name. Uh, I lost it. But anyways, I've this author before I've never yeah, seen the order. Talks about you have so many spoons yeah. to deal with those types of stressors. So um when you're feeling stressed already, eye contact is just going to make it worse. And it is that sort of, um, Remus described as like wearing that uncomfortable shirt mm. or having, you know, when you've walked in the rain and, and your socks are wet, but you're, you still have five miles to walk and you just got to walk in it. And it's that yeah, feeling, gross. it's like, that's eye contact mm. for a lot of autistic people. So yeah, they could do it, but do they want to? And if they're stressed about other things, they will not at all. And so I thought it was a good way to, I mean, it was helpful for me. So aside from having the, um, whatever you want to call them, academic experts, medical experts, you know, now I'm using the metaphor for my book, right? But the main expert is people who are experiencing it. And Mm -hmm. so when you can get adults who are autistic or adults, depending what the thing is, I mean, just thinking of um, gender non-conforming people Mm -hmm. when you start to talk to adults you can start to understand that you know the kid who's assigned male at birth wanting to wear the dress not just for pretend but something there's something deeper going on there and then you can find you find out from adults oh i knew when i was four yeah you know and there's every evidence to show most people do know at the age of three and four um but they also know how to please adults so Mm -hmm. if adults react negatively especially strongly negative they'll hide that mm-hmm. until they're until they can't anymore that's heartbreaking yeah but but uh, you know you learn from like you can learn from other people i guess yeah and so point. this is it doesn't something... just have to be the experts in the field yeah so that i guess comes in with you know the autistic disability rights folks mm-hmm. um coming out and 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 letting us know how they experienced what was offered with good intention by, you know, people who thought they, they, they were helping or whatever, and some not, but overall, I think that's one thing, but this is, so this is what you do so well is you find those other, those other uh, groups, people, voices, and then you come back in to early childhood with it. Um, it, So like in the, uh, your inclusion includes us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just the idea of social disability. Like I'd never heard that before. Right, right. Um, that phrase and just hearing the phrase, the social model of disability. I mean, um, just hearing the yeah. phrase was like, oh, like there was an immediate. Right. Oh, right. this is a this is a, a way to think about this that fits um, what I have seen and experienced. Right. Better. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't know how to talk about it or didn't know how, that right. there was a whole group of other people talking about yeah. it too so it becomes I mean, empowering yeah and it's funny because when i was researching that book i didn't what i didn't read was special education books mm-hmm. 
Um, and it was on purpose because I had just accidentally, I mean, really the disability rights movement, I was a little bit aware of, mm -hmm. but felt like I had to delve deeper into it because one being the parent mm -hmm. <laughs> of a disabled uh, child who's about to become an adult. Mm -hmm. um, and just, you know, the more you do it, the more you realize, wait, how come I don't know this? Like it, it affects everything I do. Mm -hmm. um, and in the book, I start with a story about a child with um, cystic fibrosis. To, cystic fibrosis. Thank you. <laughs> I was trying to remember which, which one started the book. Uh -huh. Yeah, it was the cystic fibrosis uh -huh. uh, story. Uh, and I don't think I acted as well as I could have. Mm. You know, I don't think I was in that story. You were in an early childhood script. Yeah. Right. Uh, yes, exactly. That was it. I was in an, uh, yes. But then I had the humanity and I responded, but I was aware that these two things don't mm -hmm. jive. Yeah. And that I just have to put away the one script, but I didn't know what's a new early childhood script for. It. And that's mm -hmm. what I hope the book is. Mm -hmm. And in general, I feel like my books tend to be, I'm going to look in a different place and then figure out what to do. What I'm bad at is really reading entire books in early childhood. <laughs> um, my ADHD is like really obvious to mm -hmm. me in some ways. Uh, but yeah, then it, it actually works out well for me in that sense of like, well, I don't want to, you know, okay, I know those books are written. Let me go look outside the field yeah. and see what's around. Um, so yeah, yeah, so it's good and bad. Yeah, not I can bad, just send you my highlights. I just hang out with copies. you guys because I know I have enough <laughs> early childhood nerd friends that are, mm -hmm. you know, um, that read the entire book. Yeah. I, I yeah. just read part of it and listened to the podcast with the author. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, what else? Let's, let's talk about the speech language pathologist and what, yeah. you're learning, what, what, why that's, why you think she needs to be on the podcast, not her specifically, but like, what has that right. brought to the Although conversation she should be, for but you? Yes. Yeah. Well, I'll say, I know. Say, so specifically, <laughs> yeah, sorry. For Carrie Hahn, uh, this is a, just the the plug I'll give because I have a feeling she won't be able to do anything until the school year because uh -huh. she has two kids. Um, and and also her one child made a museum of boppets, um, nice. the toy boppets. So, uh -huh. um, uh -huh. yeah, that's what she's kind of been doing. She's got <laughs> them all day, uh, uh -huh. the two, two kids. Um, because the conversation we had was at a playground and she had to interrupt a few times to go help out. But um, one thing that I think she's really good at, and this is why uh, Anna, who's been on the podcast, mm -hmm. told me, you two don't know each other. You've got to meet. Because <laughs> we had worked in the same building for a little while, uh -huh. but didn't cross paths. Is she's, Anna described her as the person who's most able to connect with non-speaking children almost right away. And so we were sitting there at the, you know, when we first met and I said something about that and she said, well, yeah, I mean, I think what it is, is, you know, I just kind of, I don't say anything right away. I kind of see what they're doing and take an interest in that. I might imitate what they do. And she's like, I just don't understand why, like the thing that people should write about first is attunement. Mm. which for those who've read my book right. and I had a copy of the book to give to yeah. her and I just opened it up to you know whatever it's like page she six. probably studied you secretly just no I don't think in. so because she was like oh my god you know, yeah it, but <laughs> Anna knew that the uh -huh. two of us are actually thinking alike but yeah I love that she talked about attunement and then Harry Ebert another Carrie I didn't think of that um 
is a speech language pathologist. I just discovered it on Instagram. She does some pretty cool, you know, just those little graphics also. Mm -hmm. um, had this one about speaking it just being one color in the rainbow of expressive language. Yeah. And that was the first time I saw a simple way of explaining that, right? That mm -hmm. gestures are just as um, meaningful. They They aren't less than Mm -hmm. speaking vocalizations aren't less than and I think those of us in early childhood because we're people who grew up wanting to play teacher <laughs> we're very biased towards speaking yeah and, and and probably even writing too to a certain degree depending yeah. you know if you have five-year-olds it's still like writing but I realize I watch it all the time because we have non-speaking kids in our program but we're an inclusion program so it'll be maybe one child in each classroom, mm -hmm. but teachers don't interact as much because they don't, they'll ask a question and the people who talk first, so the people who, who verbally process quicker mm -hmm. are the ones that they hear and the teacher will say, well, I asked it to everyone. And then right. I just, you know, I, but that and, one gets the attention and the connection. And then they get the, the connection because and they, attention. Because yeah. they verbalize. That's one of the things that I um, learned really early from Anne Grit, who was the speech language pathologist that I worked with at Purdue. Um, and, it, you know, I don't ever remember having an explicit thought or feeling that, um, uh, you know, children who aren't verbal aren't communicating or aren't able to communicate. But I definitely have felt myself and seen in others that we attribute more intelligence to the children mm -hmm. who speak. I was going to say, you might think earlier. they have thoughts, but not complex thoughts. Right, right. So, so I, you know, I learned a lot of new information about that sort of rainbow of communication from her, but ultimately it was just a trigger, a, a, not a trigger, a, a switch that flipped, a flip the switch, mm -hmm. whatever you yeah. want to say, that made my implicit bias almost explicit so I had to do something about yes. it and I and then I thought more about it and then I could be more intentional about it right um and a lot of times that's what um what happens I mean sometimes I am just learning something brand new like right sensory processing stuff I haven't yeah, yeah. thought about me until too yeah. I started at at Purdue yeah um but sometimes it's just oh okay so that's the way I've been operating and I didn't realize it and I want to do things a little differently now Right. Um, so I have a question for you because yeah, um, what I imagine some listeners thinking now is, okay, that's great. And you've, you know, I'll go look up Dr. Erica and Greg and, and Kelsey Olds. Uh, but if like, how do we find it? How do we, how do we sift through what's garbage in another field and what's good in another field? Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good, yeah, for sure. And I think, I mean, I've been, I guess, similar to you, mm -hmm. most of it has been because I was in a place where I could have that personal relationship. Yeah. So um, at my workplace, there's speech language pathologists, occupational therapists, and mental health practitioners mm. on site. And the kids, depending on how insurance allows for it and what the child's needs are, sometimes the therapist will be in the classroom for the session sometimes they do have to pull out mm -hmm. sometimes one of the things i like where i work is they have um the it's called the super gym they have two different gyms where it can have more than one child in the facility at the same time and it's usually a therapist per child 
mm-hmm. depending on how the insurance works again. Yeah. <laughs> um, sometimes it's one therapist, but two kids can be working because they're not just working on the motor skills involved or the processing skills involved. They're also focusing on the social because mm-hmm. too often the older models of occupational therapy or any speech language pathology, anything like that, you go into this room isolated and then the child can do it with the therapist. And it's like, yep, they, they're good to go. Mm-hmm. And they go into the classroom and yeah. the teacher's like, what do you mean? They can't do any of that. Yeah. What do you mean? They can't, you know, you know, they, their motor planning is just as, you know, disorganized mm-hmm. as ever, you know, and, uh, it, you know, and that's so that having that social piece of it, but then for me, a lot, you know, being able to talk to people, then they'll say, oh, have you read this book or, mm-hmm. oh yeah, this whatever so I can have a conversation in the hallway just real quickly about whatever mm-hmm. you know and I usually start with it seems to me or <laughs> my experience in the classroom has yes. been this is what do you think that's all about or something mm-hmm. you know and and I'm also conscious of not trying to mansplain to someone who's actually the expert in the field yeah. but more I know like in the classroom this thing isn't making sense to me from my early childhood lens here's my gut instinct, but tell me, <laughs> am I on the yeah. right track? Yeah. And why would that be? Or something like that, you know? Yeah. But it is true, like how to find those people. I think finding someone you do like mm-hmm. and then look at their book and look in the notes. Who did, yeah. you know, who did they use? So someone like Angela Hanscom is someone who crossed over, right? With Balanced mm-hmm. and Barefoot. And then go look in her notes what other occupational therapists is she talking about mm-hmm. um or even on instagram or facebook yeah it you're fi- probably just going to get a visual or something but then find out what else they've done if they right. have something published or if they have or if you can just email them mm-hmm. <laughs> or or you know i mean uh what's her name um no, kelsey uh yeah. occupational yeah Therapist, like she replies in the comments. To she people. really does. She gets in there. Like, and she's. Good. I don't know how she does it, but yeah, like ask the question right there. Start to figure out if it makes sense. And more than anything, I think for me, it's mostly being an observer. Mm-hmm. Oh, when I take this idea and I try it out, yeah, they're right. Like I actually feel more connected to the kid, or the child seems to feel like they belong mm-hmm. now that I do x you know and so part of it is just trying things and then like like you said the eye contact one Mm -hmm. you immediately know oh this child keeps (laughs) avoiding me when i do this um and then Mm. you can use your gut instinct for that right there's a reason that you as a human being are noticing this other person seems to be in distress because of what you're doing Mm -hmm. and anytime you see that that is an indication that you should stop doing it. Mm-hmm. You don't know the reason. It could be, you know, because the child's experienced trauma from something similar or whatever. Yeah. It could be because you're doing something from an outdated therapy model. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it could be anything, so, but and you that can could read be, a child. Yeah. And that could be then our cue for further search. Like yes. if we just say, okay, I'm going to Google, what can I learn from an occupational therapist? That's not going to be super helpful, but if, you know, we could Google, um, why is eye contact difficult or, yeah, you know, something yeah, yeah. like that, like it, it, that, that instinct that we have in the moment can lead 
to the thing we search that can lead to yeah. the next thing, to right. the next thing. Yes. And I do encourage like listening to good podcasts. Uh-huh. I mean, so I'm a podcast person. So that's yeah. the way I go. So two sides of the spectrum is a great way to start to yeah. learn. And the person who does it, I can't remember her name offhand. She is not mm-hmm. autistic, but a lot of her guests are. She's also very clear when it's someone who's part of the autistic community and who's part of the autism community. And there's a difference. Uh, mm-hmm. You can actually hashtag actually autistic is one yeah. great way to find out. So listen to autistic adults when they're talking about autism. Mm-hmm. They don't have to be your only source, but um, you need to make sure you're listening to adults who can articulate things because ABA mm-hmm. is a great example of it. You're going to be hard pressed to find autistic adults who are like yeah that was yeah that was definitely helpful for me yeah that's what I I needed I had the first um not my first autistic student but the first student who was like really verbal and open about being autistic in a class this summer and she was diagnosed as an adult so she didn't have any ABA stuff but it was really you know like I'm not saying it was on I was relying on her to educate us all but she was so good at connecting her own experience to things we were talking about and so um sort of open about contributing that that um that I learned a lot yeah um, just from that (laughs) the other thing I want to sort of visit is um this is not to say that it's all one-sided and that we can learn from them like I I've been in situations where thank you um uh, I've had, you know, I've felt like I needed to advocate for a child, yeah. um, to a therapist or, or to an IEP yep. team. Um, the most obvious one that I remember is so for one thing, just like general developmental therapists in Indiana, at least, um, just have, have to have like a certain number of credit hours in early childhood education to do that, but they can choose, um, so like they take a lot of family stuff and they take intro, but right. Right. Um, and I didn't realize like one of the things that was shocking to me when I was in the preschool language program was that these grad students were coming through and didn't seem to have any child development other than speech and language development. Right. Right. Um, and I was like, well, then why are they in a lab? Well, they rotate through all the labs. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and they can come into the grad student with some other undergrad. So anyway, that was one of the things I learned yeah, too, yeah. was just to give me then a little, um, uh, uh, I'll say empathy. That's a little stronger than I want with those, with the therapists that I feel like, Oh, why are you doing it that way? Um, but you know, every now and then a goal will come across an IEP goal for like a a three-year-old to, um, uh, learn to, you know, share more or, or to, spend uh 15 minutes on a non-preferred activity and focus you know and when we look at development um child development we know that those aren't really maybe realistic right right overall goals um so there are some times when we can be the advocates too or like um in in that program at purdue you know, I was the early childhood specialist and was the speech language pathologist we ran a preschool program play-based preschool program so that those speech language pathologists could learn how to, um, the grad students could learn how to, um, kind of embed those therapies into play and into daily interaction and into routine times. So I think it's a two-way street. Um, but I'm just super excited about all the things I've learned from 
yeah. from the yeah. other side no, of the street. It is true. So. I remember we had this summer program with the possibility of doing it longer where mm -hmm. the second half of the day, kind of after nap time. So it was just whatever, hour and a half or so, the classroom, um, there was a, a speech language pathologist and an occupational therapist who came in as acting basically as the assistant to teachers, but they would lead the group times. So mm -hmm. they would kind of demonstrate ways that they do some of their work, you know? And so, mm -hmm. you know, and they were all like fun games for everybody to do. But even in the, I think it was three months long, and then we were going to, you know, assess it, and it was way too expensive to continue doing. But yeah, that's um, one of the apparently problems. they get paid more than assistant <laughs> yes, teachers. Yes, I believe they do. No, uh, <laughs> um, but it's interesting because the one therapist, I mean, both therapists had experience, but the one person had been in the field for decades, and she's like, I learned so much in those three months, mm -hmm. you know, like didn't matter that I had 15 or 20 years, whatever it was at the time in a therapy room to watch a room of whatever it was, 16 kids. And this child with the things that I know what I'm working on outside yeah. of the room, but to watch that and like, Oh, this is like completely different, uh -huh. you know? And so it was interesting. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of times at those fields, but certainly yeah, there's room. I mean, I think the best way to do it is if you find someone who who you get along with, you know, because I, I encourage everyone to have some sort of reflective practice. Some right. of us do it on YouTube, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> um, but you know, everyone should have something and don't just make it other early childhood people. If, yeah. if, if you have other people interested, the group that became Teaching with the Body and Mind was originally just around um, physical play. Mm hmm and one of the people that was at a lot of our discussions, we just met at coffee shops, was a uh, psychologist, mm -hmm. you know, and then one person was special ed, you know, like, yeah, we didn't have a huge array of people. Most people were preschool, yeah, you know, but still, it just gives it a different, you get these other perspectives. But if you have that opportunity in some way, I encourage that, even if yeah. it is a social media relationship, well, whatever. Even if, so I'm thinking about um, theorists. I mean, I'm kind of always thinking about theorists. But you? Specifically, specifically right now, because I'm getting ready. Economic to, theorists this time? No, or no? no early childhood. Um, uh, no, not early childhood theorists. That's the point I'm going to make here. Okay. Um, but at one of our uh, objectives that we have for our intro to early childhood education class is to go over all these theorists. And the first, you know, somewhere within the first part of every early childhood education textbook is a section on theorists. But if we really look at the people that we're studying, like Montessori wasn't early childhood. She was John Dewey wasn't. John Dewey wasn't. Um, Piaget wasn't. Piaget were both psychologists. Vygotsky right? wasn't. Right. None of them were. <laughs> These people that we study as theorists and the basis for our specific field. Um, I hadn't. That's a great are way. Are coming yeah. from all over the place, but that's we, where we could have started from. Well, I, <laughs> you said <laughs> Wait, you didn't want to talk specifically about theorists. So, no, it's true. It's um, true. Uh, so anyway, I you know I just was thinking about that, and I was like, it's the same thing now. Um, we sort of uh, get into these silos, yeah. Um, and and uh, maybe if we if we go back and reflect on how the people we base most of our work on were not specifically trained in early childhood, right, right, that will help us be a little bit more 
I guess, open. Uh, again, that's not quite the nuanced word that I want, but um, I, right, I, but think, I, think, I think it could be an interesting reflection. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, your phrase or talking about it as scripts that we yeah. we learn these scripts and everywhere you go, we have the same scripts, at least in the United States. Yeah. And the script itself isn't real. You know, it is a script, mm -hmm. just like every other script. Right. And so we have to fall, you know, using schema theory, we have to fall into something <laughs> to start with, but yeah. we shouldn't let, but we still need to have that um, reflective piece or that uh, critical piece. Mm -hmm. Critical thinking. Right? That's what why, we're to say. Why do I do this? Why do I always say whatever, you know, the person says, like, just thinking of uh, a teacher who has the weather, if they're still checking the weather, doing the weather. Yeah. Like, you know, because my first question would be, so which kids in the classroom don't know what the weather's like when they go outside? <laughs> you know, right? Because the yeah. script is, it's it's because we want to teach kids to do. sit down and talk about meaningful things. It's science. Well, that's not meaningful. <laughs> right. That's not meaningful at all. Because yeah. if they all know it, like I'm, you, you and I are going to just sit here and talk about um, what shade of white you have on the wall behind you, even mm -hmm. though at some point when you were painting the walls, maybe it was a, a discussion. Yes. But yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to bring up past no. trauma. No, no, but, no. You know what okay. I mean? Like it's, I, these are the walls we moved into. No okay, trauma yeah, yeah. here. <laughs> but, you know, it's just not that interesting. Like neither of us would sit here and talk about it, uh -huh. but we could argue like, well, we want to talk about it because you know, it's, we want the kids to have something to talk about and they all have to deal with the walls. So let's talk yeah. about, yeah. you know, let's look at the paint chips and tell them how we there decided. There will be walls in kindergarten. Yeah, <laughs> We right. need to talk about right. walls here. But it's the thing of like, but nobody can tell me. I remember I had a friend, um, uh, Jonathan Fribley. I know his name came up recently. can't remember um, the organization he's part of now, but uh -huh. he talked about, he researched for a while. Why do we teach kids colors? Like, why is that in a lot of curricula? Uh -huh. You know, and he like, he said, I've been searching and searching. The only answer I can come up with is vocabulary. Oh, boy. Yeah. And it's like, you can add a lot of different words to a child's vocabulary. Uh -huh. It seems like, okay, red. Okay, they've got it. Now what? You're like, right. like, kids will experience things. You may find a kid who yeah. can't come up with the color name. I never have met one yet. <laughs> <laughs> I've only been in the field, whatever, 30, only 30. something years. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sure there's someone. I did have a kid who was trying to like would mix paint like, oh, I'm trying to get periwinkle. And cool. she would just keep adding because I just had, uh, you know, the pumps for the different mm -hmm. paints. So she kept adding color. I um, love that. Yeah, I think I, I think this is anonymous enough to say that her first name was Matisse. Um, <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> so, yeah, like you knew her parents, you know, yes. whatever. Yeah. But just that thing of that's the only time I've seen color like really yeah. that interesting to yeah. kids. The names of colors, I should say. Yeah. So well, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know his research. Just getting out of our scripts. Right. I would I would say one of the other reasons unspoken is that it's easy to measure and feel like we're doing well. Something. Yeah. I mean, he actually knew that part, <laughs> yeah. honestly. It's a discreet um, skill that we can. But he measure. was trying to be like, yeah, so yeah. so so it's you a, measured it. Like that's a discreet deficit thing. we can create to feel like yes, exactly. <laughs> there we go. Just like, oh, they said it was partly cloudy and clearly it is right. Right, right what's wrong with that kid yeah we need Obviously, to work they're not ready for kindergarten we need yes. some uh 
intervention yeah. here. Man. So. Um, okay. So what else did you want to talk about with this one, Mike? I really just want well, to keep singing praises of, of the people that I've. I know. On, like, so the other one I want to just throw in there you. because we've mostly been, oh, shucks. <laughs> we've mostly <laughs> been talking about um, like early childhood field and yeah. things and sort of things about, oh, you'll understand children better. Mm-hmm. But I'll just give one story, um, and I'm sure this people have had other things, but for me it was groundbreaking. So me and uh, another teacher that I worked with went to see these uh, these painters um, called the Unruly Julies. Uh, nice. So they were sort of performance artists slash painters, and what they did was on there was this empty stage, like full like theater stage, fairly big. And paper would just suddenly drop from the ceiling, like roll drop okay. down. And then um, the one painter, one of the Julies, they were a married couple, both named Julie. Nice. Um, <laughs> the one Julie, whose last name I'm forgetting now, I do remember her first name though, but uh-huh. she um, she does these like speed paintings basically, right? So then music comes on and she starts painting. Now we know that by the end, they're going to have the Sistine Chapel painted, but on the floor. Oh. So the ceiling painting. And in these very stylistic, a little bit, if you know the artist Keith Haring, sort of that style mm-hmm. of painting. So she's doing these speed paintings of um, the uh, the different figures of God and Adam and, mm-hmm. you know, all these different things. But in this very theatrical way, so each part of the painting she would do in like two minutes or something, you know, and then another thing would come down. The other Julie um, was just known for running at the paintings with a paintbrush that was just had red paint. So it looked like she was stabbing Abbing, nice um but also and tearing down the paper so eventually the paper wasn't hanging up you know from the ceiling it was down on the floor uh-huh. and, and things but you know we watched as this entire stage became this giant painting and becky and i looked at each other and we're like we've got to do that at our school and so then every year after that we had this we had this like so it, it had started when we came there to, uh, i was like a theme week like our school was play-based, but we'd have this uh-huh. week in the middle of March, because in Minnesota, it's still not spring yet, right? But right. everyone's going crazy. Um, so they had these different themes and we kind of, I think there might've even been a paint theme or art theme one day, mm-hmm. but we were like, okay, so what if we moved all the furniture in one of the classrooms to the side and covered it in paper? And so we got the 12 foot wide, uh, like backdrop paper that photographers use okay and you can get white paper so we just mm-hmm. got white we bought uh six gallons of cheap uh temper paint uh-huh. and just like fly swatters and like kid mops and all these sorts of things just implements for them to paint with mm-hmm. and just um put them you know put the paint in the middle the implements around and then kids just came in and covered the room in paint eventually we started um the teachers would wear uh kevlar not kevlar uh the white papery suits yeah the, okay whatever those i are don't called. know what they're called but I yeah know. yeah but that we looked like those envelopes you know yeah. uh um so we'd be covered in that so they could paint nice. us too <laughs> and we got a few parent volunteers to come and they just like as the kids were done they went through the bathroom and there was like a bathroom that connected to another classroom so into the bathroom with like big dish pans of water you know like <laughs> wash the kids out like clothes were off they had uh-huh. a change of clothes like though we told all nice. the parents you can use cold clothes from the school but or bring some but they're not 
uh-huh. they're destroyed, you know. <laughs> and then they went in the other room and played. Uh-huh. Sometimes it was warm enough to go out on the playground. And it, what it became was the parents, uh, this is a few years ago, so I, some of it was on Instagram. It was probably mostly on Facebook. But parents just came early, watched the whole thing, filming it, yeah. you know, just taking part in it. And we just took over the whole thing and just turned it in this big and it was because watching these two artists, it was amazing. It was mm-hmm. like, oh, I want to see that. And mm-hmm. and part of it was these two adults look like four-year-olds, <laughs> like the enthusiasm of four-year-olds, uh-huh. yeah. you know? And so, um, yeah, we just were like, oh, we got to do that. And then we did it. Yeah. And so, um yeah anyways that so thinking that sometimes it's just that you'll see something on whatever tiktok youtube something's like oh that's really neat oh what would i do what would happen if i tried that in the classroom right right how does this translate into yes so that's a little just more of that inspiration thing Mm -hmm. but that became like a huge thing every year and parents would be asking like when is it this year it sounds like it would be a huge thing that's great yeah so Um, i just wanted to throw out that there's there's other types of inspiration that are outside your field that right doesn't have to be a therapist or an uh yeah uh you know someone specifically working with children even it can just be right yeah i was trying to think if i had any examples like that i mean i mean i definitely know that i just kind of walk through the world thinking how could i use this how could i use this (laughs) right oh yeah for sure and i know you know i mean we all do it to a certain degree but i i I guess i think a little bit of like bev boz you know talking about like like don't just have some vinegar and and baking soda like Mm -hmm. make the room explode (laughs) you know so like if you see something like how could you not just do it Uh but like really do it yeah so yeah Ah, so this is another one of those moments where I really wish I was still in direct care. I know, I totally miss being able to do that. <laughs> um, yeah, so I hope no one that's working on the committee to help me build this child care center is listening right now because they'll be terrified of what Just, I might do. You need floors that you can hose down, that's all. <laughs> yeah, um, all right, well... Uh... I, I I just always when when we're recording I'm always like okay what other questioners might question might listeners have or what yeah yeah what might needs clarify I don't I, you know I think we're in a good they can spot just write this. us because we'll have just, to talk again yeah yeah um or if they have examples like I'd love to hear yeah. examples of things that yeah. other folks have yeah. um been inspired by or learned right. from something outside of and if they're already listening to this obviously listening to this podcast is a way to find other <laughs> people that's true yeah yeah. <laughs> Um, okay. Well, thanks, Mike. Yeah, um, thanks. As always, it was a good time. Um, and thanks everybody for listening. I hope you come back again next week. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.